This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. We'll be making references in 1 Samuel, also 2 Samuel. We are going to wrap up our series, Bless This Mess. And if you're just coming in on the tail end of the series and would like to catch it, of course, you can go to our website and go to the archives. Just follow the links there and and uh, you will be able to find it. Even if you're just halfway techie, you can, you can find past lessons. I want to ask a question today that will kind of launch us into our lesson. And um, pardon the scratchy voice here, but I'll stay away from you. You stay away from me, and we'll be, live happily ever after. Uh, but, but here's the question that will kind of launch us into our, our lesson. Have you ever made a mess messier. In other words, in in trying to fix a mess, have you ever made it worse? I have. I've made relational messes messier. I I, I didn't use wisdom. I had a situation with with people. This has happened multiple times. And and, uh, so I I didn't use wisdom and things went from bad to worse. I've made parenting messes messier. And I'm sure none of you have. But uh, you know, in dealing with the situation in our home, I thought I was doing right, and, you know, it blew up on me. And, and uh, I've made church messes messier, and I remember one particular instance where, you know, there was a situation I thought I was dealing with it after prayer and, and fasting. I thought I was dealing with it in the right way, and I dealt with it, and the people left the church. And uh, so I, I've made messes in a church messier. I, I've even made and for uh, the local painters here, you might be able to understand this, but I've made paint messes messier. J- just a quick story here. We always keep leftover paint to touch up those marks that always seem to mysteriously appear on the walls. And I, I, I don't know how that happens, but it just, it's a mystery. You know, you get these marks. How did that get there? But anyway, we, we keep touch-up paint, and um, we've got a little unfinished storage area in our basement. And so stacked up neatly were several gallons of paint that we had accumulated uh, for different projects down through throughout the years. And one day I went down there, and you, you guessed it, you know what I'm going to tell you, but one of those gallons of paint that had been stacked up several high had fallen over, the lid had partially come off, and um, it leaked paint over a sizable area on the floor. And, and uh, honestly, Ken Hubbard, I didn't even know where to start cleaning it up. Um, how do you clean up a pool of paint? And if you get that figured out, let me know. But uh, I, I started trying to mop it up and sop it up and scoop it up. And without getting into all of the details, the end result was that I caused that already big paint spill to practically double in size. I had taken that mess and made it into a bigger mess. You probably have your own story of making a mess messier. So today we're going to talk about that because with every mess, there's the potential of making that mess messier. In fact, with every mess that, that you inherit, every mess that you create, you have some options. You, you have some options that in a few moments I will call virtuous options. Those options may not immediately fix your mess, but over time they will help provide a foundation to where you can deal with your mess. But by the same token, every mess also comes with some bad options that will make the mess messier. For example, 
Maybe those bad options will be to borrow more money to try to pay off a debt that you couldn't pay in the first place. Or maybe a bad option will be to tell another lie to cover up the first lie. Or maybe it will be to destroy the evidence so no one will know. Or maybe it will be to hide the magazine under the bed or out in the shed. Or maybe it will be to delete the call log or send another text and pretend you were just joking around when it was obvious you were sending that text to someone else you were involved with. Every mess comes with options. Virtuous options or bad options. Now to give us a scriptural foundation for our lesson, we're going, as I said, to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We're going to talk about a man that you've all heard of, whether you were raised in church or not. You've heard of this man. And, and we're going to look at two instances in his life where he encountered messes. And in one mess, he chose the virtuous option. And eventually, he came out of the mess with his integrity. But in the other mess, he chose a bad option. And that already big mess escalated into an even bigger mess. We're going to study David. The shepherd boy who became the giant slayer who eventually became king of Israel. And just for your information, this story takes place about 1,000 B.C., which would make it about 3,000 years ago. Now, a review of the early days of, of, of David's life. One day when David was a young man, the prophet Samuel showed up at David's father's house and said, God has sent me to anoint one of your sons as king of Israel. Well, the dad immediately began calling in the older brothers, of which there were seven. They seemed to be more likely to have kingly characteristics and qualities. But as each one came by, and many of you remember this story, Samuel, came, he would look at him and say, nope, that's not the one. Another one, nope, not the one. Not the one, nope, not him. And, and, and finally Samuel said, uh, don't you have any more sons? And, and the dad said, well, yeah, there, there's the youngest one out in the fields with the sheep, but he's probably not kingly material, doesn't have the potential. Uh, well, because God doesn't look at outside stature, doesn't look at abilities, doesn't look at age. He looks at the heart. Aren't you glad? David was indeed God's choice. And so Samuel anointed David, a shepherd boy, to be the future king of Israel. However, since David was just a lad and Israel already had a king and King Saul, David went back to just tending his sheep. Well, as time went by, and again, you, you, you know this story, David took a care package to his brothers who were serving on the front lines of, of Israel's army. And, and that's when David saw the giant Goliath taunting Israel and taunting God Jehovah. And David, who had a very sensitive heart, towards God was offended that Goliath would be allowed to do that unchecked. And so he began to think, you know, there's not much difference between the bear and the lion that I killed with my bare hands and this giant that's cursing our God. And so you remember the story how David took out Goliath with a sling and, you know, we could maybe make this into a song, only a boy named David. I'm trying to think of it as I go along, only a little sling. Only a boy named David. Do you remember that? How many of you remember that? Oh, but he could pray and sing. Well, needless to say, David became an overnight sensation. This, this young shepherd boy killed mighty Goliath in front of the entire army. And, and so all of a sudden, everyone knew David, and he was the talk of the country. 
And Samuel, who details this account for us, says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, he says that in everything David did, he had great success. And there's something super interesting here that I want to point out. And this is a leadership principle. So those of you that are, that are bosses or kind of bosses or foremen or wannabes or, or, or whatever, but, but here is a leadership principle, whether it's here at this church or at your place of work or even in this community, genuine leaders don't have to have a title to lead. Now, in every church, every business, every community, you have leaders that have been selected or sometimes they're elected. But a leadership principle is that elected or selected leaders are not always the real leaders. Some may be. But, but I found, especially in a church setting where I'm most familiar, as, as leadership expert John Maxwell says, leadership is influence. True leaders are those who are influencers, not just selected or elected. And so even though Saul had the title of king, yet David was the influencer. David was the one that people looked up to. Well, naturally, this created jealousy with King Saul as he began to realize that he was losing the people. And, and so Saul thought about this problem and, and trying to manipulate things. He came up with a plan to help defuse the situation. And you remember that plan involved offering his oldest daughter to David in marriage. You know, Saul thought if David would become family, then perhaps he could do some damage control. And the people would look at both of them as one. So Saul went up to David and said, David, you're such a respected and successful young man. And I think you've earned the right to become part of the king's family. And so I want to offer you the hand of my oldest daughter in marriage. But, but David responded this way in 1 Samuel 18, 18 says, but David said to Saul, who am I? What is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? Well, the word of this gets out and and this endeared him to the people even more. And they said, can you believe that? I mean, they were in awe. They, David is so down to earth and so, so humble. And, and he refused the king's offer to become part of the king's family. David gets more and more popular. Saul gets less and less popular. Well, in a twist of irony... Another one of Saul's daughters named Michael falls in love with David. So Saul thought, I'll try this again. And apparently David had had his eyes on her as well because when Saul went to David and said, okay, my daughter Michael has fallen in love with you and I know you turned down my first offer, but would you accept this second offer and become my son-in-law? David this time says, yes, I will. Well, Saul is already licking his chops. He's devising a plan. He's trying to manipulate again. And so he said, David, it's customary for the groom to pay a sum of money to his future father-in-law for the right to marry his daughter, but I will waive that. You don't need to pay me any money. You don't need to give me any sheep. You don't need to give me any of your flocks or herds or anything like that. But he said, David, the, the only thing I'd like from you is this. We both have a common enemy and that's the Philistines, or some say Philistines, however. And, and so in lieu of paying me to marry my daughter, all I'm asking is that you go out and slaughter a hundred Philistines, and I'll need you to bring back bloody proof of that. 
And I'll just let you read what proof that was to save me the embarrassment. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 25. And Saul's thought was, you know, I won't have to raise a hand against David. The, the Philistines will do that. And there's no way that David will be able to pull this off and kill 100 Philistine warriors. Well, David and his men went out. And not only did they kill 100 Philistines, but David, to prove a point, didn't stop at 100. He took out 200 Philistines and brought back the bloody evidence. Well, as you can imagine, this caused more jealousy. In fact, Samuel tells us this in 1 Samuel 18, verse 28, says, When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now, here's the connection between this story and our series. David has a big mess on his hands. And this mess was not his fault. He's done nothing wrong. He didn't ask to be king. When he killed Goliath, he was not trying to impress anybody. He wasn't trying to become big stuff. He was just serving his country. When he led the army on military campaigns, he didn't ask to do that. He was just following the king's orders. But Saul's jealousy became greater and greater, and the mess got bigger and bigger, and finally things escalated to where one afternoon Saul completely lost it. And there in the palace, he picked up a spear, and he slung it at David, trying to pin him to the wall. David ducks. The spear misses him. David realizes he needs to run for his life. And to save time, I, I'm, I'm skipping some of the details here, but David leaves the city, goes out into the wilderness to hide. Some supporters of David, around 400 men, join David. That number eventually grows to about 600. And this is where the story gets so interesting. And this is why you should read the Old Testament. You know, for those of you that say, well, I just can't read the Old Testament. I just don't understand. You can you can. You may not understand everything. I don't understand a lot of stuff. But God has put some amazing stories in the Old Testament. Amen? God has put some amazing truth in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Well, one day after fighting a military campaign against the Philistines, Saul is returning home. His men are tired. They're probably bloody. They're hungry. Undoubtedly, they've lost friends on the battlefield. But someone runs up and says, King Saul, we've spotted David and his men. And here's what happens. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel so you've got 3,000 of the special forces, the SEALs, the very best, and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, and a few of you have, one of the places you will visit is the Dead Sea. That's an amazing place. Um, a lot of people like to go swim there and float. You just float and leave with a lot of scum on your body. It's nasty. Above the valley where the Dead Sea is, is an area called Engedi, and it looks like this right here. 
It's just an area where you've got a lot of cliffs, a lot of rocks. You've got a, a, a spring on occasion. Let's go to the next one. Um, I mean, this is it right here. That's in Gedi. It's the wilderness. It's kind of a, a mountainous uh, desert area. Well, Saul is told that they're around the spring of Engedi. Saul decides once and for all, and by the way, we're going to bring this in, so you need to pay attention to all these details. He's going to rid himself of the biggest threat to his kingdom. So Saul and his 3,000, 3,000 of his best soldiers, the, 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 the special forces go after David. And the story gets wild here. David and his men realize Saul and his soldiers are coming after them, and more than likely they split up. And they say, David, you know what? Some of us are going to go this way and just kind of try to imagine the terrain here. You know, some of us, we're, we're, we're going to go this way, and, and uh, others of us will go this way. But uh, David, um, we want you to be in the safest place possible. And so l- look up there. David, do you, do you see that cave? Yeah. David, we'd like for you to slip up there, a few of your best bodyguards with you, slip into that cave, stay there until we give you the all clear signal. David and a few of his men, they go into the cave. They go back to the deepest and the darkest part of the cave. They sit there in silence. Saul and his men come along. And if you didn't know this story, you would never believe it. So let me read it for you so you don't think I'm just making this up. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 3 says, He, Saul, meaning, came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. So remember, David and some of his men have slipped into a cave to hide. Saul and his men, army come along. Saul sees a cave. Would you believe that same cave? He calls a temporary halt to his 3,000 men. He gets off his mule. He rode a mule. Makes his way up to that cave. And why did he go into that cave? Well, Scripture answers that, the last part of verse 3. Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, most people believe that when Scripture says that Saul went into the cave to relieve himself, he went in there to relieve himself. I mean, went to go to the bathroom. Uh, to, to me, that seems what is, you know, what Scripture is indicating. There, there are a few scholars that are way smarter than I will ever be, but they, they say, no, 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 Scripture wouldn't be that graphic. And, and they say when, when Saul went in there to relieve himself, he was actually going in there to rest and to take a nap. Whatever you want to believe is okay on on that. But Saul goes into the cave where he thinks he will be alone to relieve himself. Now, here's the question. What are the odds of this coincidence, quote-unquote coincidence, taking place? You know, if there ever were a situation where it appeared that God had designed a perfect plan for David to take his enemy out, this is it. Because if Saul is the stain, God has just provided the stain remover. You know, if Saul is the problem, God has just provided the solution. 
And the men that are hiding with David in the back of the cave, their eyes have adjusted to the darkness. They can see a little bit. And they see King Saul with his robes, kingly robes, come into the cave. Saul can't see them. They can't believe it's Saul. And they begin to whisper, David, can you believe this? This is so awesome. In fact, here's what they say in verse 4. The men said, and these are David's men hiding with him, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. In other words, David, this is too good to be true. You, you couldn't write a more perfect script. This is going to be amazing. And David, think of it this way. All of Saul's men are waiting outside. They watched Saul walk into the cave can you imagine how surprised they will be when instead of Saul walking out, you walk out? And you raise up Saul's severed head? And in that day, when, when the king was killed, the army generally surrendered. And so, David, when you hold up Saul's head, every one of those 3,000 soldiers, they will surrender. They will pledge their support to you. And you will finally become the king that you were anointed to be. Well, reading between the lines here, I'm quite sure that initially David got caught up in the emotion of what the guys were saying. I mean, how could you not? You're completely innocent. A jealous king has caused you to live in the desert. A jealous king has caused you to sleep on the ground every night. A jealous king has caused you to try to come up food for 600 men in the desert. And this jealous king has enlisted 3,000 of his special forces. They're closing in on you. But now, David, by providence, these guys are saying, surely this has to be a God thing. You have your enemy by himself in the most vulnerable, vulnerable position imaginable, either taking a nap or going to the bathroom. What could be more of a God thing? Now, pause the story. We call a timeout, and we'll come back to it in a minute. At the root of most messes we make is a breakdown in something called virtue. You know what virtue is? Virtue is integrity. Virtue is honesty. Virtue is patience. Virtue is self-control virtue is goodness and and when you scratch beneath the surface of any of the messes that you have made any of the messes that i have made somewhere in that mess most of the time we demonstrated a lack of virtue it's cause and effect. You ignore virtue in a relationship, you'll end up in a mess. You ignore virtue in a marriage, you'll end up in a mess. You ignore virtue in your finances, you'll end up in a mess. You ignore virtue at work, eventually you'll end up in a mess. At the root of most of the messes that we create is a breakdown in virtue. And you don't clean up 
a failure of virtue with another failure in virtue. Just as you don't clean up a paint spill with more paint. You don't clean up a flood with more water. You don't clean up a soap spill with more soap. Two wrongs don't make a right. And two messes don't make an unmess, if you know what I mean. And Satan is really good at making us think that bad options are good options. Satan makes us think, well, I can fix this mess. You know, I'll just borrow more money. Or I'll just tell another lie to cover up the first. Or I'll just ask a friend to vouch for me so that nobody really knows where I was. Or I'll just lie to the doctor to get the prescription meds that I'm addicted to. With every mess, there are options that reflect another failure of virtue. And and as the guys were whispering, David, do it, do it, do it, do it. I have a feeling that David was tempted to follow what what they said and what seemed to be a setup, a God moment. So try to picture this. David begins creeping, slipping, sneaking up towards Saul. And David knew how to slip up unnoticed. This was in his wheelhouse. This was his sweet spot. He was a warrior. He knew how to quietly slip up without making a sound. And and, and King Saul would never know what happened to him. All he would feel would be a yank on his hair. And that would be the last breath he would ever take. But as David is creeping up on King Saul, something dawns on him. I'm I'm about to kill the king. Not to mention that I'm about to kill my father-in-law. I'm about to kill my wife's daddy. I'm about to kill my children's granddaddy. And, and I'm about to kill God's anointed. And, and in his mind, it had to be like, what am I about to do? What in the world am I about to do? You know, if I kill the king, this will be my story forever. How will I answer my wife? How will I answer my kids? And how will I answer God? Now, this is where we get trapped. And follow me here. Would David have been justified in killing this Saul who was on a mission with 3,000 of his best warriors to kill him? Well, all 600 men running with David would say, oh, of course. Of course there's justification here. And I dare say that most of us here today, we would also say, absolutely, Saul is trying to kill David. This is strictly self-defense. Of course, it's justified. But David was about to add something to his story that he would have to tell for the rest of his life. Have you ever thought about it this way? How would he answer this? Um, Grandpa David, tell us how you became king. Um, uh, well, um, 
Your great-grandfather Saul was in a dark cave taking a, you know, whatever they called it in 1000 B.C. And I slipped up behind him and grabbed him by the hair and slit his throat. And that's how I became king. Grandpa, no! You, you killed great-grandpa Saul? Or how would David answer this question? David, honey... What, what really happened to my dad? Uh, we're really not sure what happened. He was found in a cave with his throat slit. Or how would David answer God? David, you, you know that Saul was my anointed, don't you? Yes, God. So what did you just do? You see, David was about to make a decision that even though it might have been justified and it was probably what Saul arguably deserved, yet it would have completely changed the legacy of David. With every mess comes some really bad options. So what happened? Well, David crept up unnoticed, but instead of killing Saul, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe And the men who are hiding back in the cave, they cannot believe what they're seeing. They're furious at David. But even just cutting a piece of the robe bothered David. And so we see in 1 Samuel 24, 5, afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And David said, guys, I have no business lifting my hand against God's anointed. And when he said that, the men with him in the cave probably said, well, you may have a problem with that, but we don't let us do it. We would love to have his blood on our hands. In verse 7, with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, if, if you think this has been a wild story so far, What happens next is unreal. That's why you need to read the Old Testament. Saul's men are sitting outside waiting and waiting and waiting, wondering, Saul, what's taking you so long? Are you about done? Finally, here comes Saul. Somebody puts their hands together to help Saul get on his mule. Rides a little distance away, and David appears in the mouth of the cave, and he cups his hands to his mouth, and he says, yoo-hoo, or whatever they said back, said back then. And Saul jerks his head around, and he says, is that who I think it is? And, and David says, yes, it is. It, it, it's David, your son-in-law. And David gives a little speech, and here's just part of it. In verse 10, 1 Samuel 24, this day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he's the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. And this right here, last phrase is so important, but my hand will not touch you. 
Here's what David was essentially saying. I'm opting for virtue over hurt you. In fact, you might want to write that down. I'm opting for virtue over hurt you. You might need that phrase this week. Saul, I won't use your bad behavior to excuse my own bad behavior. David could have done that. That's what we do. We say, well, you know, they did this to me. So I have a right to do this back to them. Well, David's virtue broke Saul, and Saul said, it's evident you're a better man than I. He turns around and heads back to Jerusalem, and, and Saul's soldiers are even in even more awe of David. And, and seven chapters later, listen, a random Philistine arrow pierces Saul's armor. King Saul dies. David becomes the king of Israel. So this is what I want to make sure that you don't miss. Every mess, every mess comes prepackaged with a list of options. And if you choose a less than virtuous option, you will make your mess messier. David chose the virtuous option in this mess. Remember, I told you that David got himself into another mess? And this time he didn't do so well. And very quickly, just hitting the highlights, because you know this story well, and I'm out of time. Fast forward several years from this incident. David is king. One day when he should have been with his army fighting a battle, he is sunning himself on the rooftop. rooftop. He sees Bathsheba, a married neighbor lady, taking a bath. He stares at her. He lusts for her. He has her brought over to the palace. They engage in sexual relations. She gets pregnant. So what should King David do to get out of this mess? Well, again, remember, every mess comes with a prepackaged list of options. And unlike the first mess we talked about, David, this time he did not choose the virtuous option. He arranged a complex cover-up scheme. He brought home Bathsheba's husband Uriah from the battle and, and got him drunk, hoping that he would sleep with his wife and everybody would think it's his child. But Uriah, a man of integrity, with virtue, he refused and he said, how can I go in and enjoy my wife and enjoy my comfortable bed when my buddies are on the battlefield suffering? Well, David went to plan B, chose another bad option. He sent Uriah back to the battlefield and he gave orders to the men around him. He said, when the battle begins to rage, quickly withdraw from him, leave him alone so he will die. They followed orders David's plan worked. Uriah was killed in battle that day. And so David's mess was taken care of, right? Wrong. Because the prophet showed up. And he said, David, shame on you. You not only created a mess through your immorality, but then you made it messier when you came up with a cover-up scheme to make everybody think the child wasn't yours. But then you took your mess to another level when you essentially had Uriah murdered. So you have one man, two messes. One man, two different responses to the two messes. So as we uh, 
begin our final approach here this morning, here's what I want you to take home with you. Your response to the mess is the real story. Um, the, the, the mess isn't the real story. We'll find ourselves in messes all the time. Sometimes we get ourselves into messes, sometimes we inherit a mess. The, the real story is not the mess. The, the real story is your response to the mess. And, and if you can remember this, if, if you've been taking a nap this morning, would you kind of wake up and, and get this right here? Because I think this is something that will help us. The mess that you're currently experiencing, if you choose the virtuous response, the day will come, and it may take a little time, but the day will come when your mess will be reduced to one or two sentences. Let, let me explain. The day will come when you will be able to say, well, five years ago or whatever it was, I went through a terrible divorce. One sentence. All the pain, the suffering, the month of fighting, the attorneys reduced to one sentence. Yes, five years ago, I went through a really tough divorce. One sentence. Or, or maybe four years ago, I hit rock bottom financially. I lost my house. You know, all of the events surrounding that reduced to one sentence. Or six years ago, I got busted. I got arrested. See, all of our life messes, if we make the right choices, eventually we'll get reduced to one or two sentences. Which brings us to the question, when people hear that you went through a divorce five years ago, what story do you want to tell coming out of that divorce? When people discover that you had to declare bankruptcy a few years ago, what's the story you want to tell? Or when people hear that you got busted and arrested, what is the story you want people to remember? What, what, which option do you want as a permanent part of your story? And I can answer that question for you. I know the answer. The virtuous option. That's what you want. And that will probably play out with responses like this. You know, the divorce did happen, but I decided I would not bash nor badmouth my ex. And I decided that I would keep as friendly of a relationship as possible, and I would rebuild my life on Jesus Christ. Or yes, I did have to declare bankruptcy, but I told my creditors that with God's help, I would try to pay them back as much as possible and not just walk away. And we've cut up our credit cards to reduce the temptation to spend so much. Or yeah, I did get busted. I did get arrested. But I got professional help for my addiction. And then I joined a life group for accountability. And I've been clean for four years now. So which of the options do you want as a permanent part of your story? One more thought and then we're out of here. For those of you that have made a mess, the message that I want to give to every one of you, us, today is Jesus makes beautiful things out of ugly messes. Can you say amen to that, Dick? Jesus makes beautiful things out of ugly messes. The mess doesn't have to define you. 
You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com, or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.